Paul writes in Romans 9 verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. All right, we find ourselves in Romans 9. Um, and I found it interesting that on the difficult, most difficult Sunday of the year, the Sunday that we walk into VBS, uh, we open our Bibles to the most difficult chapter in the New Testament. I don't know what was going on with that, but that's exactly where we are. And I always trust Him that He has us exactly where we need to be. Uh, but we do have a few things uh, also going on. Next week is Father's Day, and Lord willing, I'll be with the youth at Bryan College. So Cody will be ministering the Word uh, to you next week. And so it's going to be, you know, two weeks before we find ourselves back in Romans 9. So really, I just, just want to barely skim the surface and maybe create some thought and give you some things to mull over and study this week. You're certainly going to need to study Romans 9 through 11. They are, they are difficult, uh, to say the least. And 9 through 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11 is all one argument. And I can't preach three chapters in the Bible. I do well to get through a handful of verses on Sunday morning, so there's no way that we could walk through three chapters at once. But I trust that you will spend some time going 9 through 11, 9 through 11, 9 through 11, and I promise about the 50th time, you'll start to understand a few things. But they will bless you as you begin to understand them, and it will create worship in your heart. Now, before we jump into 9, I want you to notice the transition that takes place, because it is one of the most fascinating transitions that you're going to find in the Bible. And it reminds us that the Christian life is very peculiar. We have some of the most extreme highs at times, and they're followed immediately by some of the most extreme lows. When Paul finishes Romans chapter 8, he brings us to one of the highest points that you're going to find in the New Testament. Notice with me in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? And then he goes on in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the mountaintop of Romans. That is the highest point. And it is immediately followed by the next verse, Romans 9, verse 1, which is the lowest point that you're going to find in the book of Romans. Notice with me, I am telling the truth in Christ. In fact, truth in Greek is the very first word. He's saying that I want you to understand what I'm about to say. I'm just not shooting off the cuff or from the hip. 
This is the very truth of the matter. I am not lying. He says it positive and negative. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do you go from the mountaintop of worship down to the lowest part of the valley when you can't even find the words to express your sorrow and grief? If you understand the reason Paul is filled with sorrow and grief, you'll understand that we have moments like this in our own personal life. Because the, the reason that Paul is filled with such anguish is because of the people he loves. His own people have rejected the Messiah. Now let me change that a little bit and shift that into our own personal lives because you know when it's just you and the Lord and the Bible is opened up and you have the time and you begin to understand and recognize and recall the grace of God in your own life, right? Tears start to run down your face. Song wells up in your heart and you're just filled with absolute joy in the Lord. And in the very next thought, what crosses your mind? Those that are dearest to you that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, tears of joy become uncontrollable tears of sorrow. That's the Christian life. And that's the way it's going to be until Jesus comes back. That's this tension that we're caught in. People couldn't, can't tell if we're laughing or crying at the same moment at times. But that's what goes through our heart constantly. And that's what's going through Paul's heart right now. He said, you know, in the midst of these great things that Jesus has done, I look at my own kinsmen and I go, what is wrong with you? That you can't see the love of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit your life to Him. So that's what's going on in Paul's heart. He's absolutely ripped in half as he begins to write this chapter. But at the same time, this is what is so difficult for us to understand. Paul wants us to know that their rejection of Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan all along to demonstrate His wider mercy to all peoples. Even in His rejection, God had a plan to carry His gospel to the Gentiles all over the world, right? So... When we come to this chapter, like I did last time we got to chapter 8, i got to show you the goals because we're always following Paul's path. We're not following Joy's path. We're not following what's in my heart. We're following what's in the book. And so Paul is taking us to a particular place. So turn with me to the end of chapter 11, and I will show you when we get there where we are supposed to be. And we're supposed to be exactly at the same place that we found ourselves at the end of chapter 8 absolutely filled with joy expressing worship toward God. Look at verse 33. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him? In other words, when we get to the end of Romans 11, our minds are supposed to be divinely blown. We're supposed to be filled with awe at the wisdom and knowledge of God. And it also helps us to understand that once we get to the end of Romans chapter 11, we're not going to fully understand 9, 10, and 11. We're going to gain insight into some things, 
But overall, we're going to have to be filled with awe at the wisdom of God, recognizing that God's not like us. We can't make that mistake. God is beyond us and above us. He is not a man. And His wisdom is unsearchable by any ability that we might have. So we can't presume upon ourselves some sort of arrogance that we could figure out fully the mind and the wisdom of God. We cannot. But we do know His character enough to trust Him and love Him for all things because we know that He is sovereign over those things. The second thing that we're supposed to come to, we find in verse 36. We're supposed to come to the place where we give God glory for all things, for certainly He is the cause of all things. Verse 36 says this, For from Him are all things, through Him are all things, and to Him are all things. Therefore, to Him be the glory forever. In other words, when we get to the end of this, we're just going to have to lift our arms and hands and praise to God, giving Him glory for all things because He has done all things before us. God alone is worthy of all glory and praise and no one else or nothing else. You do realize we could not be trusted with one thread of glory. Because if we were trusted with glory, we would keep that glory for ourselves. We want on others to see that glory on us. We would lift ourselves up and make much of ourselves. But our Heavenly Father receives all the glory. And what does He do with all of creation, especially us, when we arrive to His presence? He shares that glory. You see what God has done? He has taken up all glory in order that when we are with Him, we might share in that glory. And only God would do such things as this. And so we worship Him and we ascribe to Him all glory and praise for all things. For all things came from Him, through Him, and are to Him. And then the last thing is the most confusing thing to me. If you'll run to Romans 9, I'll show you the last thing. And this is the thing that I'm concerned about the most that we get. And I don't fully understand it. I'll read it to you again. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is absolutely broken over the lostness that he sees among his own people. In fact, flip over to Romans 10, verse 1. He continues with the same thought when you get to chapter 10. Notice verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, the reason I find that so interesting is, is for these reasons. Number one, no one understood the gospel better than the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was given the gospel to explain to us, okay? No one gets it better than Paul. No one understands the doctrines of grace better. In fact, not only did Paul understand the doctrines of grace, he grew in his understanding of grace. Because when he writes Galatians, his first letter, he defends his apostleship. By the time he writes 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles. And by the time he writes one of his last letters, 1 Timothy, he says, I am the chief among sinners. Notice the progress. He wasn't impressed with the apostles. He was an apostle in Galatians. Then he grew to the point of understanding the grace of God. He says, you know what? I, of all the apostles, 
I'm the least. And then in his dying letter, he writes, no, you don't understand. I'm the mountaintop. That's what that word means. I'm the mountaintop of sinners. You see, no one understood the grace of God better than the Apostle Paul. No one understood the sovereignty of God in salvation better than the Apostle Paul. And yet no one had a heart for the lost like the Apostle Paul. Tell me how that works. You see, I'm afraid that we misunderstand the doctrines of grace and we have this complacent, fatalistic attitude. You know what fatalism is, right? All things are going to go according to their predetermined plan, fate. Therefore, they are unalterable. Don't get so upset about these things. Everything's going to go exactly how God designed it to go. And if they've rejected the Christ, why are you so upset about that? That was not the Apostle Paul. He said, my heart is absolutely filled with sorrow and unceasing grief. I would suggest to you, and you would agree with me, we're not there yet. We don't understand the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God and salvation yet. Because we're not absolutely broken over those who have rejected their Messiah. Once we understand the doctrines of grace and we can't stop crying because people are turning away from their Savior, we don't understand what Paul's trying to teach us in Romans 9 through 11. We have a long way to go. If we truly understand God's purpose in Romans 9 through 11, and that purpose is to demonstrate His mercy, then our heart will be impassioned to see the mercy of God displayed toward all peoples through the preaching of the gospel. And when I say all peoples, I mean all peoples. We will work to see it and we'll rejoice to see it. The mercy of God displayed toward all. You know, the word mercy is used 11 times in the book of Romans. Out of those 11 times, it's used nine times in 9 through 11. These passages are about the sovereignty of God and salvation, yes, but they're about the mercy of God to all peoples. And I know those two things are very difficult for us to bring together and comprehend, yet there is a much greater degree that we can understand these things and at least arrive to the place where Paul was in understanding these things and absolutely be broken, weeping, over the lostness around us. Now, this whole discussion is driven by a problem. Because I told you by the time we got to chapter 8, Paul is wrapping up his sermon, and then he takes off again and goes 9, 10, and 11 and comes back to that conclusion. And the whole reason that he writes all of this is because a problem that has arisen in the hearts of some regarding the Jews. Now let me show it to you. Look back at chapter 8. And you'll recall what we based our hope in. <coughs> Excuse me. This is going to be that way. Verse 24 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is... I'm sorry. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And I told you last week and the weeks prior to that, our hope is firmly set on the will of God, the purposes of God. Our hope is set on the sovereignty of God. Therefore, our hope is not going anywhere. It is the most sure thing that has ever been created by God. Our hope 
in the work of God, the promises of God. Yes, remember, the Spirit is working according to the will of God at the end of verse 27. In verse 28, God is causing all things to work together according to His purpose. And then we come into the golden chain in 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he called. These whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he glorified. And I told you, in every verb, God is the one doing the action. All the way from the foreknowledge, all the way down to glorification. God is doing every one of those steps along the way. And that is where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the work of God, not in our work. Okay, if that's true, Paul, then explain to me what happened to the Israelites. Because I can look at the Israelites and all those wonderful words that you like to use in regard to the sovereignty of God when you talk about foreknowledge and, and predestination and all those words like that, election. Certainly those words apply to, the, apply to Israel. Yes, Paul, is that true? And Paul would say, well, yeah, of course they would. Then tell me this, why has the majority of Israel turned away from their Messiah? To which we would have to scratch our heads and go, yeah, you've got to answer that for us, Paul. Because if foreknowledge, election, predestination applies to Israel, they reject their Messiah. Yet you told us that our hope lies in those things, the things that God has accomplished. Then our hope is not so sure. Because if they turned away, we might turn away. If they don't receive Christ, we might not receive Christ. So this is a huge problem. So Paul spends three chapters helping us understand this problem. Notice what he says in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Do you know why he says that? Because the accusation was, Paul, the word of God has failed. Because you said in chapter 8, our hope rests in the sovereignty of God, yet we come into chapter 9, and Paul, I can just, I don't even have to look at the Bible. I can just look at the Israelites and go, well, it didn't work out for them. Therefore, the word of God has failed according to your gospel. And Paul goes, no, 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 you don't understand the gospel. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Look at the short answer. Look at verse 6, the second part of that. For, not, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. You didn't understand. You didn't figure out what was going on all along. In other words, ethnic Israel is not spiritual Israel. We're not talking about the same things. And since ethnic Israel, the nation, the community of the peoples, is not the same thing as the spiritual Israel, the Word of God has never failed. Your hope is secure. Because your hope rests in the sovereign work of God on your behalf, you see. And so Paul's going to flesh all of that out as he walks through these three chapters. One problem. You know, Paul's already said something very similar to this anyway. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Romans chapter 2. He's already kind of led us into this thought as we walk through here. Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, they weren't paying attention to the argument along the way. And we have to be careful to pay attention to the argument along the way through these three chapters or we're not going to understand this balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And let me tell you, that's a difficult thing to understand. We've been contemplating this for, oh, about 2,000 years now. And it is a struggle. It is a difficult thing to understand. Yet they're both equally true and found in the Scriptures. So as you're making your way back to Romans 9, well, then here's the question that has to be asked. All Israel is not Israel, then what or who has made the members of the true Israel? And that's what Paul wants to explain as well as this in the midst of this. Then what or who has made the true Gentiles? What has taken place to make the difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel? What has taken place to make the difference between those in the church and those of the church. You see, there's a great difference. And let me say that again. What made the difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel? What makes the difference between those who are just in the church and those who are truly of the church? And Paul's going to flesh this out. But let me tell you something. What Paul is going to say is offensive because Paul begins by pointing us to the sovereign hand of God in salvation. And it's supposed to be offensive. It offended them and it will offend you. And we know it's offensive because look at verse 14. Because the first obvious conclusion is if sovereignty settles the issue of who is truly saved, then God is unjust. Well, look what Paul says in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Which leads to the second argument. If God is sovereign in salvation, then I am not to blame for my unbelief. God is because He is the author of all things. Well, look at verse 19. What will you say to me then? Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? You see, this whole deal is meant to be offensive. Paul is dealing with the offense that may, it absolutely makes it about the sovereignty of God and salvation. It is about nothing else. And the reason that I bring that up is because you've probably never heard a sermon out of Romans 9, 10, or 11. There's been a few passages that have been plucked out of 10 that you've probably heard of. But for the majority of them, they avoid 9, 10, and 11 because they're offensive. And pastors don't want to offend the congregation. Thankfully, y'all are used to it. I offend you every week. But I am more concerned about teaching you the truths of Scripture than I am about being popular among you. And if you don't feel the prick in these passages, I'm afraid you don't understand these passages. They really should prick your heart. They really should cause you to ask these questions that Paul asks and deals with in the text. Yes? Now he starts out carrying us through all that God has done for Israel to introduce this thought. So notice with me Romans 9 verse 4 and 5. Again, I'll read it. 
These are the divine privileges that God has done for Israel. They belong to the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. These are the privileges that no one else understood, no one else received. God chose one nation out of all peoples on the planet to give these particular things to him. And the first thing that Paul brings up is probably one of the most difficult things to understand because he uses the phrase, the adoption as sons. Now the problem with that is Paul has already said back in Romans 8.15 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, speaking specifically of those who have been justified by faith in Christ. So I immediately want to raise my hand and go, what do you mean adoption as sons? Because I thought if you were a son, then you were made right with God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be a very good argument. But Paul intentionally picks this phrase to help us understand that Israel is extraordinarily distinct from everybody else on the planet. In fact, the Old Testament refers to them as the sons of the Lord. No one else got called that. No one else had that opportunity to be referred to as the sons of God like Israel had. Not only this, look at the second one, the glory. No one else experienced the presence of the Lord. Have you thought about that? I mean, he came down on Mount Sinai in front of them all. They built a tabernacle and his glory descended in the presence of them all and resided in the tabernacle. How awesome is that? Nobody else saw that. No one else ever experienced that. And it was their common daily experience. The glory of the Lord dwelling in the Holy of Holies. That was given to them. Look at this. This next one. The covenants. And notice it's plural. It's not singular. He's speaking about the covenants that go all the way from Abraham to David and every covenant in between. And I would suggest even including the new covenant. Because the gospel came to the Jews first. You're the only one that got the covenants. Nobody else got any of those. Look at the next one, the giving of the law. One commentator suggested this was the highest. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know how you can make that argument with that book in your lap. How much is that worth to you? Can you imagine being the only group of people on the planet with that book? That's what they had. God spoke directly to them and Moses wrote it down and they had a copy and no one else had that. They had no clue about who God was or what He has done and they had it all. Not only that, look what's next. They had the temple service. They had the sacrificial system which enabled them to worship God. They were the only peoples on the planet who could worship God. No one else could. They would not be received. Their worship would be rejected because the only way that they could pull up in the presence of God and worship God was through the sacrifices and God gave that to them and He didn't give it to anybody else. They were the only people that got the promises, the future hope, the coming Messiah. They were the only people who had the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the line of men that God gave the promises specifically to, not to mention the 12 tribes of Jacob to which they belonged. Nobody else had that. Nobody else could say that they were from the line of Jacob. And then finally, I would suggest the mountaintop. The nation from whom the Messiah would come according to the flesh. Are you kidding me? Jesus was most definitely a Jew and nothing or no one else. 
They were the people through whom God chose to bring His Son to save the world. These are a very special, extraordinary peoples. And these were a peoples who were chosen by God. Now, I've got to mention this just by, by side. If you have the NASB, you'll notice the phrase in verse 5. Whose are the fathers from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, comma, who is over all, comma, God blessed forever. Amen. So here's the question in the text. And again, I just want to pull aside and not leave this there or I'd be kicking myself this afternoon. Did Paul just call Jesus God? Because if he did, that's the only place Paul does so, even though other gospel writers do so. Now, if you have the ESV, they decided for you. Notice where the ESV puts the comma. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, comma, is the Christ, comma, who is God over all, blessed forever. The ESV goes ahead and removes that comma because there is no comma in the Greek. They say, yes, this is where Paul calls Jesus Christ God, to which I absolutely agree. So there's one point that you can argue with about every other crazy religion that we have to deal with around here. He is not only the Son of God, but He is God who came in the flesh. Yeah? But He came through a particular people. One people's. And those were the Israelites who were given everything. God shorted them nothing. And yet, the overwhelming majority of them rejected their Messiah when He came. Now, why did God choose Israel? Why were they given so many wonderful privileges? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I want to show you this. I'm going to leave the text for just a minute. Give you some things to think about. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 6 with me. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of the peoples. In other words, why did He choose Israel? Because He loved Israel. Why did He love Israel? Because He chose Israel. Why did He choose Israel? Because He loved Israel. But let me answer both of those questions for you at the same time. Why did He love and choose Israel? And I'll tell you why. Their significance came from one person and one person alone. Their significance only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in order to bring His Son who is fully God and make Him fully man, He chose the most obscure people on the planet to do that. God chose the most insignificant people on the planet to bring the most glorious Savior to the earth. And if you'll meditate on that for a while, this is a collusion you'll come to. Of course He did. Because when you think about the condescension of the Son of God, how God took off His robes of glory and put on frail flesh of man. Of course, He would bring Him through the most obscure and insignificant people on the planet because that's the God that we worship and serve. That's who He is. He condescended to save us. 
Of course he would take the lowest position when he came. Right? He would be a servant when he came. So the reason that God chose Israel, the reason that God loved Israel, is because those were the people that God had decided would bring His Son to birth as a man to die on the cross for mankind. Their only significance comes from this one reality, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what God was doing in His Son. Now the reason that I want to bring this up is because this will help you understand your election, your predestination. Why did God choose you? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <coughs> I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26 and 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised things, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Do you want to know why it was that God's sovereignty worked toward you in bringing you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's because you were nothing. It's because you were insignificant. It's because you were despised. It's because you were obscure. Nothing is more contradictory than a Christian to puff out his chest and hold his head high. You've misunderstood your salvation. We are to be a lowly people and a humble people because that is who our Savior is. And that's who He was demonstrating when He rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. We ought to rejoice in the fact that we are nothing in the eyes of this world. It is our nothingness that caused God to choose us because Christ came in nothingness among an obscure peoples. There is no way if you understand the doctrines of grace that you could ever be filled with arrogance or pride. And if you have one ounce of it in your, in your heart, you don't understand the doctrine of your salvation. It should cause us to come before God weeping, crying, and crawling. So overjoyed and so thankful for what God has done for us. Giving Him our lives to be used however He sees fit. Whatever, ever, whatever suffering that we might endure, that is of no consequence to us. We're nothing to begin with. So how in the world can you offend nothing, right? You see where we've gotten this wrong. Your election and your predestination is tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Ephesians 1, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Your only significance is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we were chosen in insignificance that we might through our lives glorify our Savior and not ourselves. 
And if you consider your election, and this is a problem that Reformed people do, they consider their election as individualistic. God chose me. Well, yes, but He chose you in relationship to the Son of God. He chose you in order that you might glorify the Son of God. And He's going to glorify you because there's one who has gone before you who is already in glory. And He will be put before us all that we might bow down and worship Him. This is part of the reason that I'm convinced that we don't get Romans 9 and 1 because we think much too highly of ourselves. We don't understand the doctrine of relation. There's no way. Because if we did, we'd be an absolutely broken and humble people. Not from our personality, but from the depths of our souls. And of course, we would weep over lostness because who are we to have received grace? There's better people than me dying every day without Christ. Who am I? So of course Paul would say, man, I wish I was accursed and cut off from Christ. And that is the heaviest word. It means anathema. He's literally saying, may I be sent to hell in order that my brethren might receive salvation. He gets it. He gets the doctrine of election. Because he's, he knows he's like, if anybody doesn't deserve it, Paul would say, I don't deserve it. If anybody does not deserve the grace of God, it is me. And I would most gladly be cut off in order that they might receive. See, we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. So I, I, I don't consider it a good thing for us to walk around with our heads held high saying, well, you know, I know some things. I understand some truths and principles of Scripture that you don't get. Let me tell you something. If that's where you are, and that's where I find myself at times, you don't understand anything. Just keep your mouth closed. This is not a doctrine to argue. This is a doctrine that ought to break your heart and cause you to give your life for the glory of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. That's what this is for. Because that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. We are a people who should think absolutely nothing of ourselves. So here's the thing, though, but let me turn it and go in the other direction. The direction that you would expect. If God did all of that for Israel, okay, why didn't Israel choose God? I mean, do I have to go back through the list? I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, my goodness, man, turn around and look. It's the glory of God living in the camp. What's that in your lap? Is that a copy of the Word of God? You're the only people on the planet that can worship Him, and yet you won't choose Him? After all that He had done, after all that He had given Him, why did the nation as a whole not exercise their so-called free will and choose Christ? I'll suggest to you why they did not. Because we sorely overestimate the free will of man and we underestimate the depravity of man. We don't know how bad sin wrecks us from our tips to our toes. And that is just the reality of it. You know, I find it fascinating, and we'll get to it eventually. 
in Romans 9, only a remnant, they're referred to as the remnant, only a remnant would humble themselves and receive their Messiah. Yet the mass of Christianity considers themselves for the remnant. That blows my mind. I mean, there's just literally a handful of people who bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ or are baptized and follow them out of the Jews. Only a handful. And yet the mass of Christianity considers them to be that remnant of people. And we do this all the time. We see David marching out on the battlefield with a sling and a stone, going to strike down a giant. And we go, oh, we're like David. And you forget about the reality that the entire nation of Israel stands on the sidelines, unwilling to do anything to help themselves. They're too afraid to march out on the battlefield. And so what do we do? We as Christians go, oh, we're like David. Like, no, dude, you're like the nation of Israel. You can't and you won't do anything for yourself because you won't trust God. And a boy walks out willing to trust the Lord. You see what we do with all of this? Do you want to know why there was just a handful? Why there was just a remnant? Look at Romans chapter 9 verse 27. Here's why there was a remnant. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant of Israel that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, notice this, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So you take the mass of Israel you pluck out a handful and here you go, here's a remnant. And you go, oh, those are the ones that had faith. No, those are the ones that the sovereignty and the grace of God fell upon. Because if God's sovereignty hadn't moved on the remnant, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you catch that? Who walked out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Nobody from Sodom and Gomorrah. They all died. And Paul's trying to help them understand. Oh, you think you did this. You don't do this. It's God's grace that does this. Because there wouldn't even be a remnant had the sovereignty and grace of God had not moved upon their hearts and secured it for himself. In fact, that's exactly what he's going to get to to Romans 11. Let's jump ahead just a little bit. Romans 11, look at verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, speaking about Israel, a remnant according to what? God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He just flat out says it there. You know why we have a remnant? Because God chose a remnant. That's why we have a remnant. And if God hadn't chosen that remnant, you would have all been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul knows that. And we've got to mature to the place where we understand that. Do you know, want, want to know why you're in Christ this morning? Because of the sovereign, gracious work of God in your life. That's why you're here this morning. And if you make it the whole way and finish the fight and finish the race and you're faithful, you'll have no one to thank but God and His grace alone and not yourself. He is the one that secures you. He is the one that keeps you. He is the one that causes you to finish. He is the one that brings you into glory. 
In fact, He is the one who foreknew you. He is the one who predestined you. He is the one who called you. He is the one who justified you. And He is the one who glorified you. We have nothing to praise but God for all things because He has done all things. You can go back to Romans 9. When I talk about free will, you know, that's a very common idea. That people or man does as he chooses and people will defend that idea with a white hot anger. But I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated that they never seem to consider the free will of God. They'll argue over theirs, but they say nothing of God's. God is not free to exercise his mercy as he chooses, nor to exercise his judgment as he chooses. No, 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 no. God is obligated. So we've got God boxed up, sitting in a corner, and he's got to respond to my free will. That's Southern Baptist theology for the majority. And that's about as goofy as it gets. God is obligated. Man is not. How about that? He created the heavens and the earth, yet he will do what I tell him to do. Really? That amazes me. Now, I don't suggest that God's free will is like our free will, though. You see, one day man chooses one day and the next thing and the next day he chooses something else. Man is led by his emotions, his fears, his appetite. That's what man does. God is not like that, nor is his free will like that. God exercises his, his free will based on his purpose. Everything God does is aligned with his purpose, his will, and what he is doing. And this is Ephesians 1.11, where Paul tells us that God works all things after the counsel of his will. He extends mercy to some in order to accomplish his purposes. He extends judgment to others in order to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, God is free to act however he chooses. Because God is accomplishing his purposes. And if you give that much thought, you'll come to this conclusion. Wait a minute. We both can't have absolute free will, can we? No, you both can't. Either God is doing what he wants or you're doing what you want. It's simply one of the two. We have to understand and worship God for what he is doing. And as the last question will be done. What has God done with this? sovereignty of salvation. What has God done in the freedom of his will? And I'll tell you exactly what God has done. He has secured a people for himself. Listen to the way John puts it in Revelations 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break the seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. That's what God did with his free will. He pulled out a peculiar and particular people from every tribe and tongue and nation and he made them a kingdom of priests in order that we might enjoy him forever. I had rather rest and the freedom of God's will than my own any day. Because I know what he's doing with his will. And I haven't a clue what I'll do tomorrow with mine. We have a lot to understand. And that's what Paul's going to explain in all these verses. But I'm telling you, 
If you don't wind up in two places at the same time, either I haven't done my job or you're not doing yours. If we don't wind up at the place to where we're absolutely awestruck at the wisdom and knowledge of God and give Him glory for all things, we miss Romans 9 through 11. And if we don't wind up at the place, and again, this is the one I'm most concerned about, if we don't wind up at the place where we're absolutely broken over the rejection of Christ, if we're not absolutely broken over the lost, we have not understood Romans 9 through 11. We may have held on to some doctrines and theologies in our head, but they never made it to our heart. Because these doctrines are meant to break you in half and to give your life for the glory of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray.